As the kids head out with God's blessing and with ours, we look ahead to next week, but I also want to make us, help us to remember last week. Because last week, something truly remarkable took place in the wilderness near the Sea of Galilee. From five loaves and two fish, Jesus fed more than 5,000 people and gave them more than just a meal complete with leftovers. He gave them a taste of the grace of the reign of God on earth as it is in heaven. What happened that day in the wilderness served as a powerful affirmation of Jesus' identity as the true shepherd of Israel, as Israel's long-awaited Messiah. And if, in keeping with the spirit of the day, the national holiday as it's become, if we think of the feeding of the 5,000 as the climax to the first half of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Mark, then we can consider what's about to happen next, what we're about to hear in the Gospel of Mark, what's about to take place on the Sea of Galilee as pretty much the best halftime show ever. <laughs> I don't know what we're going to see later, but this is the best halftime show ever. What we're about to hear about takes place the following night, following this miraculous dinner party, as Jesus hurries his disciples away in a boat, telling them to go across the water to the town of Bethsaida. And I'd like to invite one of our elders, John Finch, to come to us and read to us from Mark chapter 6. Please give him your attention. Good morning. In your pew Bible, if you'll turn to page 704, uh, where today's reading is from Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 56. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples go into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up to a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them. Walking on the lake, he was about to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they saw him, and they were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Genesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. This is the word of the God. Keep those Bibles open. Don't close them. Because it's into the boat, and off the disciples go across the Sea of Galilee, or so they thought. On this particular night, as you heard, the disciples encounter a relentless headwind from the northeast. It's, to be clear, it's not a storm that comes upon them. 
It's a contrary wind. The last time the disciples had their troubles on the water, their boat almost sank. This time around, the disciples aren't in any danger, but their boat is being blown in the opposite direction of where they're trying to go. Now, even under the poorest conditions, the Sea of Galilee can be crossed in six to eight hours. But these guys, several of them you'll recall professional fishermen, find themselves unable to make any headway against this squall. No doubt this heavy gale also produced strong waves for them to deal with as well. It's ironic, having just eaten out of the hand of Jesus, these 12 men are now putting their own hands to the oars. They're rowing hard, but they aren't making any progress forward. Mark describes it for us this way. They were straining at the oars. What this means is they were battling, putting their backs into it, exerting every muscle in their arms and legs, getting blisters on their hands, battling as much against the wind blowing in their faces as they were battling against themselves, against their own limits. Can we imagine, can we picture what it must have been like in that open cockpit? They were wet, their feet soaked from the waves of the icy waters. They were cold, their skin chilled from the incessant blast of the wind. They were weary, their bodies sore, their spirits discouraged by their lack of progress. Mark tells us that they were straining at the oars until shortly before dawn. In other translations that phrase this a little bit more specifically, they were basically straining at the oars until between three and six o'clock in the morning. This means the disciples had been attempting to cross the Sea of Galilee for eight straight hours. They had started when the sun had just gone down. And they've been working, pushing, sweating as the, until the sun's just about to come up. And what do they have to show for all their effort? What do they have to show for all their striving? What do they have to show for all their straining? Nothing. Nothing. They haven't made good time. And let's be honest, they aren't having a good time. They aren't getting anywhere, but they're going nowhere fast. And beloved, I think this is a situation we can all relate to even if we've never been in a boat. We have direction. We can see the course we need to take. We can anticipate arriving at somewhere, a destination, an objective, a career move, a shift in a relationship, a personal growth edge, an idea or vision that we seek to have realized. But we just can't get any traction. We can't build any kind of momentum to get there. How many of us can relate to that experience of running in circles, the frustration of grinding our gears and being stuck in a rut, of feeling like we're swimming upstream against the current of life? Every step forward is three steps back. You can't win for trying. It's a miserable and confusing place to be. It can be an exhausting and torturous existence. Not making good time, not having a good time. Not going anywhere, but getting nowhere fast. But thankfully, as this incident shows us, Jesus is with us. The disciples press on, 
rowing late into the early morning. And then as the sunrise just begins to glow on the horizon, they catch sight of something that causes the hairs on the back of their necks to rise. They see in the distance what appears to be a man walking alongside them on the surface of the lake. It appears to be a man, but they all cry out in absolute terror because no man can walk across water like that. They're afraid, Mark tells us. They're convinced it's a ghost. Some sort of spirit is coming closer to them. And there's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. They begin to panic until the phantom speaks to them. Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. They know that voice. This is no ghost. They know that voice. It's Jesus. They're safe after all. And Jesus walks towards them, climbs into the boat, and just like before, the wind dies down at once. And you heard it. John read it for us. After what's been a great halftime show, Mark tells us how the second half kicks off in Gennesaret. Apparently, the wind had driven the disciples far to the south of their original destination in Bethsaida. Instead, they land in Gennesaret, which was a fertile plain running along the western shore of, the, of Galilee, a densely populated area just a few miles to the north of the largest city in, the, in, in that place, Tiberias. And we immediately get a sense of how widespread Jesus' popularity has become. Remember no, remember, no one's expecting him to arrive, and yet his arrival generates an instantaneous response. Mark puts it this way, they ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick onto mats wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. What a kickoff to the second half as the reach of the kingdom of God's reign on earth as it is in heaven spreads farther and wider. Jesus proves himself to be the MVP as he becomes the greatest missionary of all time, bridging the great barrier between divinity and humanity to rescue, to redeem, and to save us. That's the good news. That's the gospel, isn't it? As we struggle and strive as we strain, Jesus sees our labor and our effort. Jesus perceives all that concerns us. Jesus knows the issues that matter most. Jesus watches us all the time. He knows the battle. He knows the fight, the difficulties we're facing. And being attentive and keenly aware, Jesus comes. He doesn't pass us by. He comes to where we are and he gets into the boat with us. That's it. Here endeth the lesson. Clock me. I think that was 15 minutes. We're done here, right? Oh, you wish we were done. But this is often how this passage is dealt with. Many devotionals, many Bible studies, this is the essence of what's going on here. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is we are missing something. We are missing something huge we are missing something that is so important for us to see. After all, Mark tells us that the disciples are completely amazed. His words, the disciples are completely amazed by this whole situation. Why is that? 
What's so amazing to them? Haven't they seen a lot already? This is a, they're completely amazed by this? But Mark tells us the reason. They're completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. The reason the disciples are astounded is because they missed the point. They didn't get it. They didn't get what was being revealed when Jesus multiplied the loaves of bread the day before. And if you recall, as we talked about that last week, looking at a perspective that John gives us, a lot of the disciples didn't get it. I mean, their numbers went down to 12, but what Mark is emphasizing is even the 12 who were left sitting in the boat, they didn't get it. They may have gotten in the boat, they may have stayed like the rest who left, but they didn't get it. What did they fail to see? What did they fail to see that becomes so obvious to them now? Well, at first, let's remember, hold on to this, the disciples don't see anything. They don't recognize Jesus at all. <laughs> they think they're seeing a ghost, a phantom. Why? Because the figure coming towards them is walking on water. Many people in the history of the faith have struggled with the idea of Jesus walking on water, and they should. Because we all know people don't walk on water. The Bible teaches that walking on water is something only God can do. Many scriptural passages that point to this, I'll just give you one. Job, Job declares, he alone, he alone stretches out the skies. He alone treads the waters, the waves of the sea. This is, by the way, the point. Jesus walking on the water reveals that he is much more than a teacher, much more than a healer, much more than a prophet, much more. But if you've got your Bibles open, the disciples still don't get it at first. Which is why Mark tells us that Jesus is not only walking on the water, but as Jesus draws near the disciples, he was about to pass by them. It's kind of odd on the face of it. We might be tempted to think that this means that Jesus was just about to walk, to walk right by them as if he was ignoring them. But the language that Mark is using here is very intentional. It's very intentional. It's language intended to bring to mind a couple of incidents from the Old Testament. Two in particular. Two, when God revealed his glory to Moses on Mount Sinai and when God revealed himself to Elijah in the same way at Mount Horeb. This is language of revelation. As God, the Lord, passed by Moses and Elijah to let them see his character, who he is, Jesus is now revealing to his disciples who he really is. Do you remember the last time the disciples were having difficulty on these waters? Do you remember the, the last time that they were having a little trouble on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus intervened and do you remember what they all asked out loud? Who is this? Well, now, this time, they're getting the answer to their question. The answer that they should have perceived at the feeding of the 5,000, but didn't. However, the answer they're receiving proves not to be the one that they expect. Irony in this passage. The waves and the wind do not throw the disciples into a panic here. Mark never says that they're panicking because of the waves and the wind. When do they panic? They panic by the sight of Jesus passing by the water. The last time they were on these waters with Jesus, think about this, the disciples were afraid because they got a glimpse of who Jesus really was. 
This time they're terrified because they don't know it's Jesus. As Jesus passes by them, they are more frightened by his presence than his absence. Chew on that. As Jesus passes by them, they are more frightened by his presence than his absence. They still don't get it yet. They scream, Mark tells us, in their confusion and their fright, to which Jesus assures his disciples. He says, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. On the one hand, what Jesus is saying here is, guys, relax. It's me. But there's also something else going on here. Something else being said by Jesus. It is I, Jesus says. It is I. In other words, I am this is unmistakably intended to be an echo. An echo of that part in Exodus. Do you remember it? That part in Exodus where God first revealed himself to Moses and Moses being bold, Moses being Moses says, what's your name? Moses asks God for his name and God tells Moses that his name is I am. I am is God's personal name. It's how God describes himself to Moses and it's the last word here by which Jesus unveils his true identity to his disciples. So what did the disciples not see until now? What did they miss in the feeding of the 5,000? What have they not been able to perceive all along? That Jesus is more than just a teacher, more than a prophet, more than a healer, more than your anticipated Messiah or Savior. Jesus is the God who walks on the waters. Jesus is the God who passes by, who comes to us so we can better see the glory of his love and his deep compassion. Jesus is the God whose name is Yahweh. The God who need only say, I am. And the wind dies down and the current flows in our direction. The revelation that they missed is that it's not just Jesus who is with them in the boat. It is God with us in Jesus Christ. This leads to one more observation about this incident. One more thing I'd like us to see. One more observation that, frankly, might disturb us. If you have your Bibles open so you can follow along, it's this. Jesus set this whole thing up. Jesus set this whole thing up. What's challenging about this particular passage, if we're paying attention, if we're reading carefully, is that Jesus sent his disciples into this trying situation. Mark tells us that Jesus made them get into the boat. He compels them to go on ahead without him. He compels them to go alone. And it gets even better if you keep reading. Mark even goes on to share that Jesus looks out over the lake and sees the plight of his disciples' boat off in the distance. And at first, he does absolutely nothing. Nothing. Jesus watches from the shore as his disciples wrestle with the gale force blowing against them. He allows this struggle. He waits to intervene until, if you remember, between 3 and 6 in the morning. In case you're missing this, let me make it this blunt. 
What we ha- see happening here, it's through direct obedience to the Lord's command that the disciples find themselves in this frustrating and exhausting situation. Can you imagine the questions that were running through their heads? Can you imagine the questions that were running through their heads as they sat and strained, as they rode and rode and rode for eight hours and barely moved? Where's Jesus? He told us to go to Bethsaida and said he was going to meet us there. How's he going to get there? Why did he send us out? Out here against this impossible wind. And then later, question still, in the aftermath of this incident, why did Jesus wait until the last watch to come out to us? Why couldn't he have intervened sooner? Beloved, the disciples wonder about the same questions we ask when we find ourselves alone, when we feel isolated, when we perceive that God has led us to where we are, but that God is not with us. The singular question we find ourselves asking in moments like these is this, why? Why? And by way of answering this question, at least here, notice what Mark shares about the disciples. They had not understood about the loaves, for their hearts were hardened. For their hearts were hardened. The last time that Mark uses that figure of speech, their hearts were hardened, he was talking about the religious leaders who opposed Jesus despite his obvious miracles. Mark reserves that figure of speech, their hearts were hardened for the people in Jesus' hometown who reject him outright. And now he's using it to describe Jesus' own followers. They did not, had not understood about the loaves because their hearts were hardened. Beloved, hear this, get this. It wasn't just that the disciples didn't see the truth about who Jesus is. They were struggling to see it. They stubbornly resisted seeing Jesus for who he truly is. It wasn't just that they couldn't see it. They struggled to allow themselves to see it. They resisted seeing it. And for us, we rarely... We rarely see Jesus walking past us in our day-to-day lives, let alone walking on water. One of the things that's come out of the Kairos cards, and I appreciate the honesty within our community and the conversation, is that many of us have confessed, I've said this a couple of times before, many of us struggle to recognize the blessing of Jesus' presence in the thick of it all, in the heat of the moment. The question is, do we truly see Jesus for who he is in our lives? Do we see Jesus for who he truly is in our lives? When we look to Jesus, when we seek after him, do we see, do we understand that he's more than just a wise teacher seeking to offer us a word of guidance? As we pray to him, do we understand that he is more than a great healer looking to cure our ills and ease our souls? As we sing to him, as we invoke his name, do we recognize that he's more than just a prophetic voice? More than the one who saves us, but the Lord, the author, the owner, 
the provider and sustainer of our lives? Do we see Jesus for who he truly is in our lives? Do we want to? Do we want to? Because how does our orientation, how does our approach, how does our acknowledgement, our pursuit of Jesus change when we perceive that he's more than our friend, more than our brother, more than our bridegroom, more than our rabbi, not less than all of these things, but more that he is the son of God. When we truly see Jesus for who he is, the son of God, the invitation and challenge of discipleship gets intense. If we truly see Jesus for being the son of God, if we truly understand that he is God, what might we have to let go of? If we truly see Jesus as God, how can we hold anything back? How can we hold anything back? God our Father cannot be fully seen, but Jesus can. The disciples have seen more than God's backside like Moses. The disciples have been seeing God in the flesh, the face of God in the face of his son Jesus. But up until now, that answer, that revelation has just sailed right by them. So Jesus sends them off on their own. Jesus allows them to butt up against the wind. He knows where they're going, but Jesus lets the disciples take the wheel, steer the boat for a while. He never takes his eye off of them. They're never out of his reach, but Jesus allows them to strain at the oars and to try to fix their own problem. Jesus doesn't rescue the disciples from their predicament. He put them in because sometimes the lesson, the learning is in the struggle. For me, in one sense, this passage is a vivid picture of life apart from Jesus. It's a poignant representation of our lives apart from God. We try to go it alone in this life, and this life can quickly become tiring, isolated, frustrating, and fruitless. And let's not kid ourselves. Misery loves company, right? And there isn't safety in numbers. If we're all lost and confused, we can lock arms together. We can all lock arms together, but if we're all lost and confused, getting into the same boat together sounds better than going in alone. But if we're all lost and confused, ultimately without the Lord, it's still the blind leading the blind. Sure, there's strength in numbers. But apart from Jesus, we're just a bunch of disoriented and helpless people. A panicked mob shuffling chairs on the Titanic. Or as we heard last week, last week, we're sheep without a shepherd. And beloved, sheep without a shepherd are a dying flock. We can and we often do resist seeing this. Living this truth about our relationship to Jesus because we're just so naturally, we compartmentalize our lives. We hold back. Okay, we accept some of God's authority over our lives, but if I have to acknowledge that Jesus is God, then I gotta give him everything and I don't wanna give him everything. I wanna hold on to this part. This part's mine. If I actually really believe that Jesus is God, I got no excuse. I gotta give him everything and I don't want to. 
But this God, our Father in Jesus Christ, just keeps knocking on our door. He keeps providing us with bread. Sometimes even walking on water right in front of us. But we are blind to see. Sometimes we even refuse to see. You know, people, when we get into these conversations about seeing God, encountering God, one of the things that maybe comes up in your conversations, they do in mine, is people will often point to faith based on miracles. I'll believe if God does something miraculous. And that's our default, right? When we're struggling, we challenge God. God, do this, and then I'll believe. Show up, make this happen, and then I'll believe. Whether we acknowledge it or not, our default is we think that faith is based on miracles. But what I want to say that the scriptures point to, and this passage right now especially, is that miracles aren't enough. If miracles lead to lasting faith, my brothers and sisters in Christ, if miracles lead to lasting faith, then what's up with the disciples? How many miracles have they witnessed? How many miracles have they participated in? Do you remember their short-term mission trip? How many miracles have they witnessed? How many miracles have they participated in? Miracles that we would call, as we would call them. And yet here they are crying out in disbelief in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Beloved, sometimes the struggle is the point. Sometimes Jesus allows us to struggle in order that we might finally see. But let's be honest. We don't like this. Delays? Frustrations? Tension? Limits? We prefer to cut to the chase. Okay, yeah, yeah. I, I, okay, you're trying to teach me something, Lord. Why don't we just get to the point of all this? Let's, just, let's, get, out, let's get rid of the middleman. What's the point of all this, Lord? We, we don't want the struggle. We want to cut to the chase. Or some of us prefer to avoid the challenges altogether. Look, you know what? I'm just going to pass on this one, Lord. Maybe our resistance is the problem. Maybe the reason we're straining at the oars, maybe the reason that we feel like we're getting nowhere fast is because we're stubbornly trying to go it alone. Because we're refusing to see Jesus for who he is in our lives. I'm going to say something that we don't talk about enough in the church, and it's ironic because it's what Scripture screams out at us. It proclaims repeatedly. We don't talk about it enough in the church because, to be honest, as marketing goes, it's not a great way to sell the faith. It's not what people on the corner expect to hear when we want to share Jesus and the kingdom with them. But this is what Scripture declares, and this passage is about it. More often than not, it is our, in our experience of being broken that God does his surest and most characteristic work of salvation. Let me say that again. It is more often than not in our experience of being broken that God does his surest and most characteristic work of salvation. You want to be saved by Jesus? Prepare to be broken. And if you think you can experience salvation from Jesus without anything breaking in your life, you don't know Jesus. And you don't know this gospel. And this idea that the experience of being broken is how God does his surest and most characteristic work of salvation, we may not like it, but it kind of makes sense because, beloved, old habits die hard. Hard hearts are tough to penetrate. I made the point last week that to truly follow Jesus, we need to reach the end of ourselves. And I got some feedback on that one. People who are confused. What do you mean by that? We've got to reach the end of ourselves. I don't get that. 
this dovetails nicely to what, what the word is saying to us this morning. We, to truly follow Jesus, we need to reach the end of ourselves. And reaching the end of ourselves means reaching the end of our resources. This means coming to the end of our capacity. It means coming to the end of the, coming to the limits of our own perceived strength, our own perceived skill, our own perceived competency. It means truly accepting, not just paying lip service to it, but truly accepting that we can't fix the situation, that we can't solve the problem, that we don't have the answer. Beloved, God tells us again and again that his power is made perfect in our weakness. But again, let's truth tell. We fight being weak. Deep down, we don't really believe that's true. We don't really believe that that's true, that God's power is made perfect in our weakness. We believe in God's power when we see miracles, do something miraculous, do something life, you know, the epic, a great halftime show. We believe in God's power when we see miracles, we say. We don't see God's power in weakness. Beloved, miracles are not enough. Miracles don't produce faith. Faith comes from the struggle. Faith comes from the miracle of God working through our weaknesses. Faith comes through the miracle of God working through our lack of resources. Faith comes from God working when there's nothing to work with. If we refuse to see our weakness, we are refusing to see Jesus for who he truly is. If we refuse to see we, our weakness, we are refusing to see Jesus for who he truly is, like the disciples. Because after all, guys, people who are strong don't need a savior. People who are strong don't need a savior. People who believe they have what it takes on their own don't bow down before any other Lord than themselves. Faith. Faith comes it's given, it's received through the struggle. Faith is given, faith is received when we come to the grips, come to grips with the truth that we want to avoid, we want to deny, that we're not smart enough. We're not smart enough, we're not gifted enough, we're not relational enough, we're not strategic enough, we're not disciplined enough, we're not loving enough. And that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Because when we are weak, he is strong. Reaching the end of ourselves, we truly can see Jesus for who he is. When we reach the end of ourselves, we recognize, perhaps for the first time, that Jesus is Emmanuel. We understand that God is with us in Jesus Christ. My friends, we're all in the same boat this side of eternity. We're all in the same boat. In this life, we will all face adversity and hardship. There are going to be times, many times, when we will find ourselves straining at the oars, especially when we try to live our lives apart from Jesus. And sometimes, when we're struggling to believe, when we're resisting trusting Jesus, he will let us, he will allow us to buck up against the winds of change, the currents of the world, 
And in those moments, when we reach the end of our resources, in those moments, when we reach the end of ourselves, we have no need to worry. We have no reason to fear. We don't have to cry out. Because sometimes the lesson is in the struggle. Sometimes we need to wrestle with the darkness in order to appreciate the light. Beloved, the only way to get to the resurrection is by going through the cross. The grace of those moments is that when we find we have nothing left to do, the grace of those moments, and it is grace when we reach the end of ourselves, is that all we have left is belief. Trust that Jesus has not abandoned us, that God will never forsake us. Sometimes the way, the best way to see how present God truly is in our lives is to exhaust every other possibility so that when Jesus passes by and calls our name, we recognize his voice. We acknowledge his presence and we let him go to work. We're all in the same boat this side of eternity. We're all facing the same winds of resistance. But beloved, Jesus is about to walk on water. Waters that we can't make any headway upon. Beloved, Jesus is about to pass by our line of vision as we struggle and as we strive to get ahead in life. Let us at last see him for who he truly is. But let us also take heart. Let us be encouraged that whether we recognize Jesus or not, even if we recoil in fear, Jesus is about to climb in the boat with us. The same boat we're all in. Let us rejoice that even when it seems the darkest, even when it seems like we're getting nowhere, that everything is against us, Jesus still sees us and comes to us. The good news, the gospel, is that our God, our Father, is with us in Jesus, the beloved Son. The one who changes a little bit of food to be more than enough for many is the same one who can alter the wind and change the course of our lives for the better. Beloved, Jesus is sitting in that boat with us, and he will lead us to the other side. Amen.